What's up, English 11? Guys, what time is it? Okay, Monday. Don't know the date. Oh, yeah, I do. April 27th, 8.46 p.m. It's your English teacher hollering at you. I'm sitting at my desk in my house, and my baby's in bed. Check. My son's on Xbox. Check. Um, Tatum's going to be coming up the stairs in just a little bit with her dad, and they'll be going to bed, or she'll be going to bed. Um, so... Hey guys, first I want to say thanks so much for tuning in. I don't know who you are on the other side of that. I don't know who you are in those earbuds, but um, this is a really weird time. And I know I've said that before, but I just want to say that if you're doing your work and you're listening to this and you can hear my voice, I think that's awesome. It's If you're only doing this for the grade, I think that's awesome. <laughs> if you have an A and you're still doing this, I think that's awesome. If you're doing this just to hear me talk and you don't even really care about The Great Gatsby, I think that's awesome. Um, I just think it's wonderful for you to continue your connection with high school and with me and with English 11. And we're asking so much of everybody right now that I just think it's really cool when people decide to to do something, even though, even though they know they don't absolutely have to. And that's you. That's you guys. That's you, listener. And I really appreciate that. And I just want to take a minute to say, um, I'm so happy you're here. And I wish I could hear you say, I'm here, Mrs. Bar-. You know, I wish I could hear you. Um, but I can't. That sucks. But at the same time, I guess we're still a little bit connected. I so badly can't wait until I can stand in the hallway in between classes and wave to people and hug people and shake people by the shoulders and say, oh my gosh, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in so long. Um, Sometimes I can't think about it too much or reflect on it too much because it just makes me sad. But, you know, I think that that only leads me again to say like, this is all we've got right now, right? Just me talking, you listening, you doing stuff on Classroom me reading the stuff you're doing in classroom. And I I really appreciate those of you who are giving it a go in an effort to stay connected to me, the work, the school, whatever. So with that brief introduction, let's put our eyes on chapter three, baby. Okay, guys, I know I've said the word juxtaposition probably 200 times, but this is all about juxtaposition to Myrtle's world. We're going to get a Gatsby party. Ain't no party like a Gatsby party because a Gatsby party does not stop. Actually, it does stop in a very abrupt way, but we're not there yet. So um, I want to read a lot of chapter three today on the podcast, but there are some major highlights. Okay, so the first one on the first page of chapter three, he talks about, Nick talks about how on weekends, Gatsby's Rolls Royce, Guys, if you don't know what a Rolls-Royce is, Google it immediately. This is an extremely fancy car, but the thing about the Rolls-Royce is that the Rolls-Royce is very flashy. Like, it's not a car that's sweet, but, like, not everybody knows it's sweet and it's understated. It's a car that says, like, look at me. I've got buckets of money. And I hope you're kind of pausing to think about, like, huh, like, there really is two types of, not two, but... There's a lot of types of wealth, but one type of wealth is like understated, right? Like I don't want to draw attention to my wealth. 
And then the other type of wealth is like, I'm wearing this gigantic puffy coat and it's 80 degrees outside and it's got fur on it. And I need everyone to know how expensive it is. Gatsby is the latter. That boy is in a puffy coat right now with his Rolls Royce. Okay, so it says, on the weekends, his Rolls Royce became an omnibus bearing parties to and from the city between nine in the morning and long past midnight, while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all trains. Um, and on Monday, after the big weekend, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears, repairing the ravages of the night before. So he like brings in all these people to come to his parties, and they're raging. Okay, every Friday, five crates of oranges and lemons arrive from a fruitier, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, in New York. Every Monday, these same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpless halves. There was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour if the little button was pushed 200 times by a butler's thumb. So these, this fresh fruit is all about making the cocktails juxtaposition. What was the cocktail at, Mar at Myrtle's party? They were sharing a bottle of whiskey. That's gross. At Gatsby's party, they're bringing in fruit and they're like, you know, using this amazing new technology of an orange juice, um, juicer to make the cocktails from fresh fruit. Then he goes on, on the next page to talk about all of the amazing buffet food. Okay. Seven o'clock orchestra arrives, not a thin five piece affair affair, but a whole pit full of oboes, trombones, saxophones, viols, cornets, piccolos, and low and high drums. Okay. We've got the food. We've got the booze. We've got the full orchestra. And then, um, it says the lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun. And now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera of voices pitches a key higher. Laughter is easier minute by minute spilled with prodigiality tipped out at a cheerful word. The groups change more swiftly swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Always there are wanderers, competent girls who weave here and there among their st stouter and more stable become for a sharp, joyous moment the center of the group, and then, excited with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and color under constantly the constantly changing light. So he's talking about like all these people mingling and becoming more relaxed as they stay and they drink. And then it says, suddenly one of these gypsies in trembling opal seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage, and moving her hand like a Frisco, like Frisco, dances out alone on the canvas platform. A momentary hush, the orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her, and there is a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she is Gilda Gray's understudy from The Follies. The party has begun. And this is really just a description. And I, uh, I should, I keep saying I'm going to post movie clips, but I don't want to tempt you guys too much in the movie with the movie. But in the movie, there's this girl, there's this woman, and she does the exact thing. She like comes out on the dance floor, she slams a drink. She gets out and she starts dancing alone. And at first people are like, that's weird. She's dancing alone. And then the orchestra director's like, hold up. And then he starts directing or conducting his musicians to go to her beat. And then, and then everyone's like, whoa. And everybody floods the dance floor. So um, Nick is describing one of these nights. 
And then he goes on to talk about the first night he goes to Gatsby's party. And this is really important here is that he has actually been invited. Nobody at the party has been invited. They all just go to the party because that's what you do in 1922 in the summer weekends in New York City. You go to Gatsby's house. So he's actually invited, which is very curious. He says, I had been actually invited. A chauffeur in a uniform of Robin's Egg Blue crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. The honor would be entirely Gatsby's, it said, if I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call me, call on me long before, but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented. Signed, Jay Gatsby in majestic handwriting. This is also in the movie. No joke. The majestic handwriting is in the movie. So um, Nick goes to the party and he's really interested in finding the man who invited him. So he, like his nerdy self, is walking around asking everyone if they've seen Gatsby. He said, as soon as I arrived, I made an attempt to find my host, but the two or three, the two or three people of whom I asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements that I slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table, the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone. So when he says to people, hey, do you know where Gatsby is? They look at him like, what are you talking about? Then, I love this next line, he says, I was on my way to getting roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house and stood at the head of the marble steps, leaning a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden. So, you know, like imagine you're at a party by yourself, you don't know anyone, and then you see one person, you're like, oh my God, yeah, it's you, hi, he's so excited to see her. So they chat for a second. And, um, Jordan's sort of asking him, they're sort of asking each other about, um, you know, how they look, what they're wearing. And then they bump into these really weird people. And then do you guys remember this from our last conversation? He starts, they start to talk about the rumors people have heard about Gatsby's. So, um, this woman, Lucille says, I never care what I do. So I always have a good time when I was here last I tore my gown on a chair and he asked me my name and address inside of a week. I got a package from Croyer's. I don't know what that is. A fancy store with a new evening gown in it. So she's this random guest says, you know, what's weird is I, I tore my dress last time I was here and he sent me a brand new dress. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, so they linger, they chat, people are getting drunk. There are some great lines in this, in this section here where they talk about, um, more rumors. So Lucille says, um, oh, uh, sorry, before Lucille, one woman says, somebody told me they thought he killed a man once. A thrill passed over all of us. The three Mr. Mumbles bent forward and listened eagerly. I don't think it's so much that, argued Lucille skeptically. She's the woman with the dress. It's more that he was a German spy during the war. One of the men nodded in confirmation. I heard that from a man who knew all about him, grew up with him in Germany, he assured us positively. Oh, it couldn't be that. Oh, oh no, said the first girl. It couldn't be that because he was in the American army during the war. Um, okay, so nobody knows anything about him, but they're, of course, gossiping about it. So then Nick and Jordan decide they have to get up and go somewhere else. So they go to the bar, and but Gatsby's not there. 
Um, so he's not on the veranda. They go into these important looking, um, you know, rooms. They can't find him. And then we get this really interesting scene. So interesting that I think we might have a symbol on our hands. Okay. Um, they walk into a high Gothic library paneled with carved English oak and probably transported complete from some ruin overseas. A stout middle-aged man with enormous owl-eyed spectacles was sitting somewhat drunk on the edge of a great table, staring with unsteady concentration at the shelves of books. As we entered, he wheeled excitedly around and examined Jordan from head to foot. What do you think? He demanded impetuously. About what? He waved his hand toward the bookshelves. About that. As a matter of fact, you needn't bother to ascertain. I ascertained. They're real. The books? He nodded. Absolutely real. Have pages and everything. I thought they'd be a nice durable cardboard. Matter of fact, they're absolutely real. Pages and here, let me show you. Taking our skepticism for granted, he rushed to the bookcases and returned with volume one of the Stoddard Lectures. See, he cried triumphantly, it's a bona fide piece of printed matter. It fooled me. This fellow's a regular Belasco. It's a triumph. Okay, so let's pause for a sec. There's this guy, and he's short and stout, and he has glasses on. And we're going to come to call him Old Owl Eyes, because Nick will call him that eventually. Or maybe he already called him that. Hold on. Um, no, he hasn't yet. And, um, and he's standing in the library, and he's shocked because the books are real. And, and old owl eyes had thought that like Gatsby would have faked his library. Like he would have just filled it with cardboard or something, but he's actually ordered all of the books and put them in the library. Now this is interesting for a number of different reasons, but one is that this guy, this character, this random drunk guy at the party, um, he has sort of expected that there's something not true about what Gatsby is presenting to the world. And you as the reader should also maybe suspect that. Like, what's this guy doing? Like, having these amazing parties. Like, what's he up to? Um, okay. So then let's keep reading this because it's so funny. He snatched the book from me and replaced it hastily on the shelf, muttering that if one brick was removed, the whole library was liable to collapse. Who brought you, he demanded, or did you just come? I was brought. Most people were brought. Jordan looked at him alertly, cheerfully, without answering. I was brought by a woman named Roosevelt, he continued. Mrs. Claude Roosevelt. Do you know her? I met her somewhere last night. I've been drunk for about a week now, and I thought it might sober me up to sit in the library. Has it? A little bit, I think. I can't tell. I've only been here an hour. Did I tell you about the books? They're real. Okay. We're going to see him again at the end of the chapter. So then they leave the library, and they go back out. They're sitting at a table. Um, there's, you know, this entertainment outside and, um, then we have the moment. So Jordan wanders off, um, or sorry, it says at a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. Your face is familiar. He said politely, weren't you in the third division during the war? Why? Yes. This is Nick talking now. I was in the ninth machine gun battalion. I was in the 7th Infantry until June, 19, June 1919. I knew I'd seen you somewhere before. We talked for a moment about some wet, gray little villages in France. Evidently, he lived in this vicinity 
for he told me he had just bought a hydroplane and was going to try it out in the morning. Want to go with me, old sport, just near the shore along the sound? What time? Any time that suits you. It was on the tip of my tongue to ask him what his name, his name when Jordan looked around and smiled. Having a gay time now, she inquired. Much better. I turned again to my new acquaintance. This is an unusual party for me. I haven't even seen the host. I live over there. I waved my hand at the invisible hedge on the distance. And this man Gatsby sent over his chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment, he looked at me as if he failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What? I exclaimed. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew, old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. Okay, here comes the smile. Picture Leo DiCaprio right now. He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced or seemed to face, or seemed to face, um, the whole external world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just as far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best you hope to convey. Precisely at that point it vanished and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over 30, whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. Sometime before he introduced himself, I'd gotten the strong impression that he was picking his words with care. Almost at the moment when Mr. Gatsby identified himself, a butler hurried toward him with the information that Chicago was calling on the wire. He excused himself with a small bowl that included each of us in turn. I said bowl. I didn't mean that. He excused himself with a small bow that included each of us in turn. If you want anything, just ask for it, old sport, he urged me. Excuse me. I will rejoin you later. Why do you guys think Chicago's on the phone? Um, okay. So then um, Gatsby leaves. Oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about. First of all, Gatsby's smile gets talked about a lot, and it, it's important for you to know. Hold on, let me take a sip of water. Nick goes like, Nick slash F. Scott Fitzgerald talk really about this distinct smile that he has. And, and certain characters have certain, have, have one key trait. Gatsby's is his smile. Daisy's is her voice. Okay. So just keep that in mind. Um, okay. So then we have the, um, the party keeps rolling and they play the song, the jazz history of the world. And, um, people are dancing and it's all great. And then it says Gatsby's Butler was standing behind us. So he's still standing there with Jordan. Miss Baker, he inquired, I beg your pardon, but Mr. Gatsby would like to speak to you alone. With me? She exclaimed in surprise. Yes, madam. She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment and followed the butler toward the house. I noticed that she wore her evening dress, all her dresses, like sports clothes. There was a jauntiness about her movements as if she had first learned to walk upon golf courses on, on clean, crisp mornings. Okay, I'm going to stop there for the night, guys. So out of nowhere, and remember, Jordan doesn't know Gatsby. Um, he asks to speak with Jordan alone. Hmm, lots of hmms going on. Okay, so there's a lot happening, but this is really 
our first introduction to Gatsby and he's charming and he's extremely generous with his, with his party and him and Nick actually served in this war together and they have this in common and he seems so shockingly down to earth for a guy who is so wealthy, just randomly throwing these crazy parties on Long Island Sound. And then out of nowhere, he wants to talk to Jordan Baker. Guys, we have a lot of mystery swirling, but that's kind of exactly what this book is. So that's the first half of chapter three. I hope you guys are enjoying it. If you have questions, make sure you email me and I'll be back on Wednesday night with part two.